Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. What does the mother of an environmental activist say when her son, who's committed to a vow of silence for 17 years, speaks for the first time? She jumped up out of her chair and she goes, Hallelujah, Johnny's talking. And it's like, oh my God, I should be quiet for another 17 years and it's just to get that kind of a response. And you'll hear some philosophy and poetry from a Trappist monk whose lifestyle defaults to silence. My ears are stifled by the crush of my own thoughts till silence says hush. And when I commit to a vow of one week of silence, what do I worry may make me break it? What if I run past a beautiful woman and she goes, Hey, what's your dog's name? Would I break it then? I'm Kyone Wolf, here from me and my inner voice about vows of silence on the next episode of Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and woo, it feels good to say that. See, I'm recording this intro after a week of not speaking. I did it for this episode about people who've committed to vows of silence. Later, you'll hear my internal dialogue and how not speaking went, and you'll meet a Trappist monk in Kentucky who has a lifelong commitment to default to not speaking. But first, what's it like to be an environmental activist who decides to not speak for 17 years? John Francis took his vow of silence starting in 1971, which he broke only one time. He wrote about it in his two books, Planet Walker, 17 Years of Silence, 22 Years of Walking, and The Ragged Edge of Silence, Finding Peace in a Noisy World. I asked him what was going on in his life when he was 27 years old, when he made the decision to get quiet. I'd been listening to the Beatles. I remember that song, number nine, number nine, number nine, three times. It's a magical number. And, uh, you know, I was 27, three nines makes 27. And I thought that this was actually a, a very auspicious birthday. I needed to really commemorate this birthday in a different way. I was also reading The Hobbit. But I remember that hobbits on their birthday, they don't expect to get anything on their birthday. They expect to give something on their birthday. And I thought, as I read that, gosh, what a really cool, you know, way of being. And I decided that, you know, I've been arguing about my walking and oil spills and the environment for so long now. And it just seemed like it took up all of my conscious space that I decided that maybe I should be quiet for one day. And that was going to be a gift to my community because I just spoke so much. I was such a blabbermouth and I slept out in, under on the mesa. I like to sleep outside. I was, I'm pretty much an outside person. And so I was sleeping outside that night and it rained and 
you know, the dew was really, I can just remember how glistening everything and clean everything was on that day. And I, and I wasn't speaking and I didn't pollute it with my words. I went down to see my girlfriend at her house and, you know, we had coffee and I guess halfway through the coffee, she realized I wasn't saying anything. <laughs> and she says, well, she said happy birthday to me and everything. And I nodded and smiled and we had a big hug and an intimate moment. And then she asked me, oh, you're not talking. <laughs> I said, dawned on her. And I shook my head and she said, oh, that's, I think that's really, you know, a good thing to do. And uh, I went out to the beach and I slept there at the beach. When I came back the next day, you know, I, I still hadn't said anything. And I didn't feel like saying anything. I felt that it was more important that I listened. And in listening, I realized that I hadn't been listening <laughs> to anyone that I thought that I knew enough that I knew pretty much everything that was going to be said. So I, I wouldn't listen. I listened to someone just enough to think I knew what they were going to say. And then I'd stop listening and start thinking about what it is I was going to say back to show them that they were wrong or... Or that you were so smart. Yeah, I was so smart and, uh, and I knew everything. And what I learned in that day of listening was that, gosh, <laughs> I didn't know everything. And I had been uh, fooling myself thinking that I knew everything and that I had lost so many opportunities to learn from so many very uh, wise people that I should just be quiet another day. So at this point, are you thinking, I'm going to be silent for years and years and years? Or was it, I'm just going to roll with this and see what happens? Yeah, I think if I thought I was going to be silent for 17 years, I probably would have started talking right away. <laughs> it's I'm learning so much by being silent. I It goes another day and another day. Uh, eventually, it's a week. I mean, and I, I've never been quiet for a week. I'm doing my normal, ordinary things, and but I just don't talk. And a month later, I have to write my parents because to let them know that I've decided to not speak for a year. And that's my vow. I'm not going to speak for a year. And if I think about it, and if when things happen, when that year's up, you know, I'll revisit my decision and I'll probably start speaking again, or I could renew that vow. So 10 years into it, you did speak for about an hour. Why? Because after 10 years, I decided that I didn't want it to be like, oh, I didn't speak for 10 years. I'm going to go for another year or that I couldn't do it, that it wasn't a choice, that it was something that I had gotten stuck in. So on the 10th year, I allowed myself to speak to the people who were around me for about an hour. And then I uh, I called my parents up, by the way, and, and talked to them. And wait, wait, I got to jump in. What did it feel like the first time you spoke? It probably feels like, you know, someone who's walked everywhere 
for a long time and then they get in a car <laughs> or the reverse of that you know <laughs> you've been driving everywhere for a long time and then someone says okay now you have to walk and you go what <laughs> it feels good and it feels bad and it feels good yes yeah, just just across the street to the store <laughs> it's all of that but they're not speaking for me. It's because I had it's something that I have to do myself and something not being done to me or something I do to myself. Having to get back into the habit of forming things in your head and making your muscular stuff work so that they, your lips would form these words. So I spoke very very softly. And people who were with me, you know, someone would ask me, John, how are you? And I would go, I'm doing okay. And then they'd look at me and go, oh my, John, you said something. Are you okay? Are you all right? <laughs> and I said, yes, I'm okay. I'm going to speak for the day and then I'm going to stop speaking again. And yeah. How did it feel when you decided to go back into silence? Oh, well, because I had already spent 10 years of not speaking. Uh, it was um, a, a very comfortable place for me. And I think that's part of the reason. And I tried to explain it by saying uh, that I wanted to speak in 10 years because I didn't want it to get to a place where I couldn't speak, where I wouldn't speak because it was so comfortable, you know, I think I'll just stay here. You know, hey, this is nice. I think I'll stay here. Yeah, I, I don't have to say nothing. Hmm. So I didn't want to be that place. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, I think sometimes we need to make ourselves uncomfortable in order to go forward. So I had to make myself uncomfortable to speak, understanding that I still needed to spend more time in silence to go back into the to that comfortable place and spend the next seven years not speaking. And then when I started speaking, it was like, okay, this is, I got to say something now. Well, wait a minute. I want to, I want to, I want to stop you before we get to that point, because when you talk about being uncomfortable, you and I have only been talking for a little bit. And of course I've, I've watched your Ted talk. We've done a bunch of research on you. You have such a joyful, jubilant personality. You have a great sense of humor. You are so vivacious and fascinating and curious and all of that it grows when you communicate with people, right? And when you engage with people verbally often. And so when you talk about discomfort, I think like, weren't you uncomfortable, not only just in, a, in ways, not speaking, but not engaging your whole self, your whole personality with the people around you? I did engage my whole self <laughs> because part of that engagement was being with someone and listening to them, <laughs> that they had something to say that was important enough for me not to be thinking over their thoughts, but taking them in and feeling them and, and being joyful with them or sad with them or what they were saying and trying to feel what it is that they were wanted to communicate. And then knowing that we 
actually communicate maybe 80% or 75% of our conversation uh, non-verbally, uh, our, our whole being. If we, were, if we were sitting together, we would be communicating some in words and some in speaking, but the most we would be communicating in this non-verbal way, uh, which is our face, our feelings, you know, what we feel from each other, the the auras or, or the electric the charges that right? we're giving to the, yeah, vibrations that we're feeling from each other. And I think that being in that place and being able to communicate with people who are willing to do that, because it's a, you know, you can't do it if someone says, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, <laughs> it takes two. <laughs> so... So what's amazing is that your interest in improving the environment is a big reason why you spoke again. You were invited to D.C. to talk after the Exxon Valdez oil spill in 1989. You get there and you decide to end your vow of silence on the 20th anniversary of Earth Day. So there you are at this big presentation you're doing and you say. Thank you for being here. My mother, who was sitting in the, in the audience, I, she hadn't heard my verse except the last time I spoke on the telephone to her that was very slow. Very, she jumped up out of her chair and she goes, hallelujah, Johnny's talking. Johnny's talking. And it's like, oh, my God, I should be quiet for another 17 years and just to get that kind of a response. Now, me, I heard myself say, thank you for being here. And I said it in such an exuberant way. I turned around to see who was saying what I was thinking because I didn't realize that I had said those words. I knew I had thought them, but to speak to this audience and go, thank you for being here was just not in my MO. <laughs> I realized when I wanted to say more that it was, it was kind of difficult to actually speak extemporaneously to a large group. And I'm just so grateful to be here now <laughs> after 17 years of not speaking to this place where it's what I do. I speak and I've kind of uh, learned how to speak the truth as opposed to before I could make stuff up, you know. It's much easier to speak the truth because then you don't have to remember, you know, all the fake stuff that you're saying. I do believe that's a Mark Twain quote. If you don't tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Yes. Yeah, it's like that. Yes. So great minds. Now that you've experienced all these years of being silent and, you know, we're having this conversation, someone may hear it and think, huh. This may be the motivation I need to pursue some silence. Uh, what would you like them to keep in mind? You'll find your mentor in the silence. Look for those teachers. Be open to receiving some pretty important messages and uh, knowledge and wisdom from the teachers that are just around us and in our lives. Well, John Francis, if I may borrow from you, thank you 
for being here. Well, thank you for having me. When we get back, the quiet life of a Trappist monk. You know, you kind of go into the zone. One thing happens after another as if they were meant to be formed into a poem. And my inner voice talks you through what it was like for me when I didn't speak for a week. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and it feels funny to be speaking during this show about vows of silence because I just wrapped up a week of not talking. Later, you'll hear my internal dialogue during that very strange week. But for right now, maybe when you think of people who take a vow like that, you think about a Trappist monk. Brother Paul Quinnen is a Trappist monk at the Abbey of Gasthenemy in Kentucky. He's also a poet and the author of many books, including Unquiet Vigil, New and Selected Poems. And you know, (laughs) I gotta tell you, I worried a little bit about having this interview with him in the first place. Here's how our conversation started. First of all, Thank you for breaking your silence to speak with me about silence. And just to be clear, your choice to talk with me today isn't like costing you any sort of enlightenment, is it? Well, I hope it will. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. I thought enlightenment was, was, was your jam. Well, there's always something to be learned in speaking to somebody. And uh, I'm sure the spirit is with us. That's fair. That's fair. Okay. So will you talk to me about the place of silence in your monastery? Is it the default to be silent, but then talk with each other sometimes? Like, when would someone who's a Trappist monk speak? Well, I think your expression default is pretty good because uh, there's a specification in our guidelines that a monk should prefer silence and speak when it is necessary. So we, uh, we do speak with one another and mostly in the context of manual labor. And if you're working with a crew in the kitchen, uh, we can speak with one another. Like hand me the spatula, please. Yes, right. <laughs> I'd love it if you'd back up a little bit and talk about um, how and why you became a Trappist monk. It starts in 1958, yeah? Yes, 1958. I was 17 years old. I um, had read some things that uh, inspired me, including uh, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov and Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain, and uh, and a devotional book called The Imitation of Christ, which is really the most most important of those books. And um, you know, I came up through Catholic school, uh, grade school, and high school. I sort of knew the lay of the land, but I was never much inspired by religious life or the priesthood until I did some reading on my own, and. Uh, I thought, well, I, I can take a risk and see if they would take me out the Abbey of Gethsemane. And to my surprise, they did. And I'm still kind of surprised. <laughs> is it a lifelong thing? Well, it is if you take your final vows. You, 
you, uh, one of the vows of monastic life is stability. That is to remain in, in the monastery uh, of your choice for the rest of your life, uh, unless you get sent away to make a foundation or something like that. So uh, here I am after what, 64 years about. Is it possible to articulate what being mostly silent for over 60 years has done to the inner voice in your head, you know, that, that chatter? Well, I can become free of it. In other words, in meditation, I um, make a point of not thinking and not carrying on an inner dialogue. That doesn't work, you know, altogether, you know, 100% well, but... Uh, you are a human being after all, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's a, a matter of... Uh, I, I can be more present to the actual thoughts that I'm having rather than just being driven by emotion or by um, worry or anxiety or fear or anger, whatever. Uh, all those things can infect your inner dialogue. And uh, that would be, you know, something to discern and to hopefully overcome. So I get anxious about going on a Zoom with somebody. Sorry. What do I do? I, I you know, I, I pray for the, you know, the come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful. And of course, that sets it all on a different a level. And if I have to see somebody, they uh, once, you know, want to spend some time together. Well, you know, I proceed with a prayer. Oh, God, come to my assistance. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. Something very simple like that. You are a monk. You're a writer. You're a poet. You're a photographer, too. How does spending so much time in silence affect you in your art? Oh, I think it makes it more accessible to me. I have presence of mind. I find that uh, a lot of times... A poem will come when I'm bored. That's a good state of mind to be in because then something deeper comes up and uh, triggers the imagination. Uh, it may not happen right away, but uh, it it can happen at, at a surprising moment, perhaps, or, or something passes your mind. You might get some intuition of what a good poem might be. But you know, you kind of go into the zone and one thing happens after another as if they were meant to be formed into a poem or maybe a thunderstorm is coming up and you just kind of sit through and everything that happens in that thunderstorm seems to have significance. All you have to do is write it down in words and and of course, go back and brush it up. <laughs> so that, that uh, yes, yeah, silence certainly is the gun context. I think the word comes out of silence. And the word is, is the nursery of silence. It, it's the, you know, the, the seedbed of silence. I could read a poem to you if you wanted to hear something like that. I would love that. Yes, please. Yeah, it's in uh, Unquiet Vigil. It's called A Night Visitor. A gray cloud cover 
hides the moon, blanketing light as night grows lonely. My ears are stifled by the crush of my own thoughts till silence says hush. These ears are windows opening on quiet night where my soul can breathe. If I could reach out to touch this fragile silence, she would shy away. She offers presence, not familiarity, to my calloused hand. Close as my own breath, though my mind be far away, precious as a prayer. Rare is the moment when, with nothing on my mind, I hear her passage, subtle as a sigh. Thank you. I had a really wonderful conversation with John Francis, who took a vow of silence, which he which he broke only one time in 17 years, not to talk with me. Um, he would just go about his life as usual, but he just didn't vocalize ever. Um, and I'm thinking about, for this show, giving it a shot myself. Not for 17 years, because I love my job too much, but for a week. And so I know that the environment that I'm floating in is different than the environment you're floating in. But what are some things you think I should keep in mind for this one week that I will be completely silent? Well, listen, you know, use your ears. There's a lot of things you, you probably miss during the day because you're talking. And open up the windows and let the outdoor sounds come in. You're trying to listen to the inner music. And it, it will emerge. Just allow it to. One little trick is to get up early in the morning before anybody else in the family is up. And, uh, you know, I just quietly go about what it is you're going to be doing. Uh, maybe it's just a matter of sitting and reading or get a cup of coffee if, you, if you're addicted to coffee. <laughs> Do Trappist monks drink coffee? Just curious. Oh, yes. We, we drink coffee. <laughs> okay, good. That's allowed. Good. <laughs> That's lousy coffee as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Can we make like a donation for you or what? <laughs> I don't drink it unless I'm eating something sweet. So if you want to have more silence, um, you don't have to initiate so many conversations. Uh, and maybe let people understand what you're what you're trying to do, so they won't feel that you're mad at them, or that uh, there's something wrong with you, or you've, you're sick. Uh, just say, well, you know, it's, let's make an effort this morning just to be together in silence and do what we do. Um, they would probably appreciate that a whole lot. They'd probably like it even more if you said, you know, let's sit in silence because I'd like to listen more. Everybody wants to be listened to, you know? Yeah. Even if they're being silent. 
And of course, that's one of the advantages of silence is that you're more disposed to listen to other people. And you don't have to, you know, you know, blurt out just what your next thought is. I wonder how does it feel to be talking so much with me? Like, is it stressful physically? Is it um, disorienting? Well, no, actually, I spent about two and a half hours talking to a couple of guys this morning. Okay. We went up to Merton's Hermitage and did some readings and uh, conversation. You know, I, I enjoy it while it's going on. And then, uh, then I get time to go back into solitude. So, uh, you know, I think one of the things about uh, practicing silence is that you're free to move in and out of it. Uh, conversations can become more meaningful for one thing and then uh, but they're, ne they're less necessary You're, you don't feel like you have to have that you can do without it or you can do with it Brother Paul Quinnen thank you so very very much for talking with me well you're very welcome have a nice silent day <laughs> We're going out of this segment with a 1951 recording of Trappist monks singing at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky. After the break, will I be a better listener, a better interviewer, a better friend? A few questions and a lot of peculiar situations when I go silent for a week. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Last week, I took a vow of silence from Monday, April 25th at 5 p.m. till the next Monday, May 2nd at 5 p.m. I wanted to understand just a little bit what it's like to not use my voice, to get real intimate with my thoughts. I went about my week as usual, except for, of course, the talking part. I kept a journal, I clipped a little mic to my shirt, and recorded a lot of moments with my friends. Once I could speak again, I put together this little postcard for you, featuring my inner voice. But let's start here with some final moments of verbosity with my friend and roommate, Derek. Will I be happy? <laughs> when will the novelty wear off? Yeah. When will I be like, this sucks? Or will I be like, I don't want this to ever end. I don't want to host a radio show. This is terrible. I'm never speaking again. Goodbye. Yeah, right. Well, it'll be the reverse. Right? It'll be... No, no, no. Nah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> All right. It's 4.59, Derek. <sighs> Countdown. Let me see. I feel like the last... Derek, I, I love you and everything, but I feel like the last words I should utter will be to my dog. Yes. Um, also, usually before I feed him, there's a thing I always say. I say... You're a good puppy, and everybody loves you, and you're a good puppy. So, Gray, <laughs> you're a good puppy, and everybody loves you, and you're a good puppy. <sighs> okay. Inner voice here, it is 5.01. Let's try out this new silent life in the most low-risk way possible. Running the Red Loop with Gray at the West Hartford Reservoir. 
Yes, Gray! I messed up already. No one has to know. I'm wondering what I would break the vow of silence for here at the reservoir. What if a mama bear with cubs started running at me? Would I yell, get back? What if I run past a beautiful woman and she smiles at me and I smile at her and wow, and she goes, Hey, what's your dog's name? Would I break it then? Oh, I want to break it. I finish my run and my tracking app Strava tells me it's the fastest I've ever run the Red Loop. On the first day of my vow, huh? Coincidence? Overall, at the end of day one, I feel honored to do this. I'm excited to do this. And I also kind of feel off the hook. You know, I don't have to engage with anybody. So it feels kind of like a relief. Because lately, I've been noticing what happens to me when I talk to people about my recent divorce and my ex-wife's affair. And talking about it, it's like medicine. Until it's not. And I haven't figured out yet how the dosage works. You know, like, how to anticipate what talking about it does for me, to me. And this week... Well, I don't have to make those choices, so it's a relief. I hope not talking about it makes me feel better. Just give me the week off from all that, you know? Before heading to bed, I put on my white noise machine and decide that thanks to my personal record at the reservoir, today is a great day to register for the Eversource Hartford Half Marathon for the first time. Maybe I'll dream about how I'll use my voice to holler when I cross that finish line. Day two. It's been rainy today. I feel down, I feel slow, I feel aimless, and I can't put my finger on it. And normally when I'm feeling down, I talk to myself out loud while looking in the mirror, but not this week. So let me let me boost my mood on the Peloton. Let's go for 30 minutes and let's see what kind of music. See, music's been a challenge for me lately because I don't want to hear any love songs. I don't want to hear uh, You're the One for Me songs. I don't want to hear You Broke My Heart songs. Nothing, but uh, I'm just going to take my chances with a 45 minute classic rock ride. Five to seven, take it up, three, two, one. Day three. I wish I could talk to my cat, Whiskey, and my dog, Gray. How else can I reassure them how good they are? and how handsome they are, and the degree to which they are so cute. So I notice that I'm becoming much more physically affectionate with them. Full body hugs and long, mindful head scratches. I think they like it.
I think I like it. Derek and I are at Labyrinth Brewery in Manchester for open mic night, and he's so sweet when people come up and say hi, letting them know why I'm not talking. What's that? Why is she doing this? Oh, for a radio show. So she's like, well, I got to do, you know, I got to like kind of put up her shut up. So I gotta... for, for however long? A week. One a week. week. A week, yep. okay. So she started at 5 o'clock on Monday. And this is day three. One frustrating part of this visit to the brewery is not being able to sing along to Nothing Compares to You. And if I could speak, I'd be telling anyone in earshot, you know, Sinead O'Connor didn't write this song, Prince did. And then they'd be like, nah, and I'd be like, bet you a beer. And then they would look it up and they'd be like, oh, wow, Prince did write it. You're so smart. Here's your beer, lady. Thanks for all that new knowledge. And then I would order the darkest beer with the highest alcohol content, and Derek would drive us home. Day four. I put Gray in the car and head over to pick up Michelle. Now, okay, Michelle, how do I put this? Michelle is a friend of mine who, when we talk... It's kind of like opening two fire hydrants and blasting them at each other. We both tend to process the world out loud together, and we have a lot of feelings. So it's a wonderful intensity. Now, it surprises me, and it also doesn't surprise me that when she gets in the car, she doesn't say a word. She's doing the silent thing with me, too. It's weird at first because of, you know, how we are, but later she decides it's okay and a lot easier for her to speak. And it's lovely, but I'm noticing that I'm writing as fast as I can to keep up. And then my handwriting becomes near illegible, so I write in all caps, but then it sounds like I'm yelling. Anyway, before she leaves, Michelle reads me this poem she found that she thought I'd like during this week of silence. It's called The Quiet World by Jeffrey McDaniel. In an effort to get people to look into each other's eyes more, and also to appease the mutes, the government has decided to allot each person exactly 167 words per day. When the phone rings, I put it to my ear without saying hello. In the restaurant, I point at chicken noodle soup. I am adjusting well to the new way. Late at night, I call my long-distance lover, proudly say, I only used 59 today. I saved the rest for you. When she doesn't respond, I know she's used up all her words. So I slowly whisper, I love you. 32 and a third times. After that, we just sit on the line and listen to each other breathe. It's later on day four, and I am feeling pensive, and again, I don't know why. So I go down to the basement, sit down at my drum set, put on my headphones, and play along to one of my favorite bands, Metric. one is called Breathing Underwater, and ugh, how 
badly I want to sing along. It sucks that I can't sing along. Am I breathing underwater? Is this my life? Day five. Okay, I'm noticing an interesting shift in what I'm listening to or not listening to for the past couple days. My life lately has been the opening scene of an independent movie. Scene opens, close up of a woman scanning the shelves of a grocery store, looking weathered, lost, tired. She's wearing Bluetooth earbuds. Audio of a hypnosis podcast is playing affirmations. You have a choice every day whether to hold on or to let go. Scene shifts, same woman running with her dog, earbuds in, more affirmations. I am worthy of being deeply loved. I am worthy of being cherished and adored. Scene shifts. She's cooking dinner for one, listening. Letting go of the discordant thought that separates me from source is what forgiveness is. Letting go of the discordant thought that separates me from who I really am. Since the divorce, self-help stuff has been my soundtrack, and it has been helpful, but in the last couple days, when I'm alone at least, it feels like the fewer things I say, the fewer things I want to hear. So I haven't felt the urge to put those earbuds in at all. Appreciation, the secret sauce I'm learning for a really beautiful life, is more and more a reflex that I don't need as much help remembering. That's good, right? That's great. I'm doing great. I'm driving my friend Ryan to the airport, and at a red light I scribble on my notepad, have you ever done anything like a vow of silence? One day I decided not to um, talk when a young boy was killed by police, when it was when I was at Berkeley, so I carried a sign around, and I was like, I'm, I'm protesting in silence after the death of a young black boy. So that was overall respected because I was just angry, you know? I think I was just like, I have nothing to say. I don't want to talk to you all. Like, I'm here because I have to be, but I would rather not be here, you know? And I would rather this not continue to happen more, <laughs> more than anything else. I'd rather police stop shooting black people, period. That's what I would prefer, so. Day six. It's the most wonderful time of the year. For reasons unbeknownst to me, this is the song in my head when I wake up, and you know what? It does feel like a wonderful day not to speak. It's Saturday, the sun is out, highs in the 70s. I'm going to go outside and weed my garden. You want to hear about a mood booster? The smell of sunscreen. Another mood booster? The sound of pulling weeds perfectly. Do you hear that? That's a real live bee in my front yard, swimming through the air around my cherry tree. 
Another mood booster, hammering in metal poles to support the grapevine that totally exploded in my backyard. This feels like the first day I really spent most of my time just listening. And I loved it. Day seven. Of course, this song is in my head when I wake up. It's the first day of May, and it's the last full day that I'm not speaking. I'm not going to dwell on it. Gray and I walked downtown to take a walk with my friend Anne at the riverfront. In the final half mile before getting back to her place, I recognize two figures walking towards us. It's my ex-wife walking with the woman with whom she had the affair, the one who used to live next door. I nudge Anne. What? The woman who was our neighbor and friend looks down and away. My ex-wife has kind of a nervous smile. My body is suddenly made out of iron. I look past her. And Gray, he doesn't react to either of them. Lots of feelings. Lots of feelings. Yelling is okay. Emotions and words. I don't know how long it takes before I realize I'm holding my breath. I reach for my notepad. I start to write to Anne, but my hands are shaking. I've wondered for a long time what I would say in this situation. But I kept my vow. I walk home with my hand on my heart. I get home and I see Derek. Hey, how'd you do? You saw them out and about? Oh my gosh. Well, you couldn't have asked for a better test of the experiment, too, right? <laughs> <sighs> and, and literally tomorrow is the end. The day before. <laughs> oh my gosh. Ooh, have you thought about what your first words will be tomorrow? Or just a scream. <laughs> then you could have that in the story, but it'd just be a beep. <laughs> beep. 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 <laughs> oh, God. Laughing with him feels really good, but I can't figure out is not being able to talk about this out loud the best thing ever for me or the worst thing? Ever. If I were able to go on and on and on about it, would it make me feel better? Would it make me feel worse? For the life of me, I have no damn idea. You know what would be a good idea, though? Going to Wesleyan University for a Tycho drumming ensemble showcase. But I'm already feeling pretty shook today, and my soul can't take much more. I really, really wish I could talk about it.
Day eight. It's the final day. It's the final day. And overall, I'm feeling like, you know, I'm really going to miss this. My favorite part has been the surrender that comes along with not speaking. You know, keeping a conversation going, not my problem. But I'm also really, really excited to not only use my voice again, but also to see how this will change me. Will I be a better listener, a better interviewer, a better friend? I decide to break my silence on Facebook Live. And so five o'clock rolls around and I make some noise. words all put into one. Thanks. My mom is here. I'm so glad you joined me. Oh my God, I'm talking. You can hear the rest of that audio as a bonus in your podcast feed, and you can see the video of it at ctpublic.org slash audacious. Follow me on the socials and you'll see video of Gray getting really good at gestured only commands. And you'll see more stuff from my week of silence that we couldn't fit into this show. I'm everywhere at Kyone Wolf, and you can get in touch with me via email at audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks to all of my friends who joined me this week. And a note, the fact that I have a job that'll let me do this is amazing. Thank you to all the people who say yes at Connecticut Public, including my teammates, Jessica Severin Martinez and Katie Talarski, who produced this show. And thanks to you for listening. <clears throat> hey, what's your dog's name? <clears throat> hey, what's your dog's name? Hey, what's your dog's name? <laughs> hey, your dog! <laughs> what's his name? Hey, what's your dog's name? Hey, what's your dog's name? Hey.